Great. Well, we were singing there about how God is the author of salvation, that uh, there's this tremendous kind of plan and purpose and uh, movement of God through history. It all centers around Jesus, it leads up to Jesus, and it flows out from Jesus. And we're looking into uh, the Bible today like we do every week, because we le- want to learn... Oh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, I forgot that. All right, Ralph. You'll wonder what that's for, won't you? But... I'm, it's not that I'm feeling a little off colour. It's uh, 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 <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we, we we look at the Bible uh, each week together. Uh, if you're new to church, or if you're from the International Cafe, I thought you might like to to know that that the Bible for us is is God's word, God's truth for our lives, and it, it comes to us as a a book out of history. Um, and the Word of God is embedded in the lives of ordinary people, in the cultures that they lived in. And it all leads up to this great intervention of God in Jesus, coming into the world to bring us into relationship with him. That's why we look at the Bible together. And over the summer, we're thinking about um, the account of Abraham. We're thinking about Abraham's story. Abraham, uh, uh, we find Abraham on the scene right towards the beginning of the Bible in Genesis at the beginning of this story of God's plan to rescue the human race. He's a man who has no religious background with God. He probably worshipped something, but he certainly didn't know God or who he was or what it meant to follow the, the God who introduces himself to Abraham. And his life, Abraham's life, is changed. It's reorientated and in two ways. It takes a completely new direction quite literally, with God at the heart of it, God tells Abraham to leave his place and to go somewhere else. And uh, Abraham does that, sets out from somewhere in Iraq towards uh, uh, Canaan, what we know now as Israel and Palestine. And he's also invited into a, a new relationship with God. This God who, who tells him that he wants to, him to go on this journey says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to get to know you. And he also promises that others will be brought into what God's doing through uh, Abraham. He says that I've got these bigger purposes and I want to to use you in them. So we see that uh, in Abraham's story, he has this new direction with God. He's called into this, this relationship, a new relationship with God. And he's connecting with these bigger purposes that God has. And those purposes include for Abraham... Uh, a particular promise of a new land for him and for his descendants. It's a particular promise as well for Abraham to become the head, if you like, the, the tribal chief, the founder of a whole new group of people who are going to be at the center of God's purposes to change the world for good and forever. Now you might be thinking, well, what has that got to do with us today? Well, Jesus comes into the world. He's a descendant of Abraham. And Jesus comes to to change the human race. And he comes and he teaches about a new relationship with God that we can have. We can become friends with God again. He comes and he teaches us that, that people need to follow him. For our lives to be reorientated, to be centered, to be refocused upon Jesus Christ. And his teaching in the New Testament of the Bible, uh, in the Gospels, and then as it's worked out through these communities of believers in the early church, uh, they help us to understand what that means. 
And we're to be uh, living our lives centred on Jesus as we begin a, a journey with him. Jesus called people to follow him. You know, remember that when he was uh, here in the Gospels? He said, look, you want to follow me. Come on this journey with me. Do you know, before Christian believers were called anything else, they were called followers of the way. That was this idea that they were in this relationship with Jesus, following him. Just like Abraham followed God's lead, in a sense, we see the same idea uh, when Jesus comes to us. So that's we're studying uh, Abraham's life. We're looking into this Old Testament, this ancient uh, account, because we can learn from Abraham's story, we can learn from Abraham's journey with God, what it means for us to live our lives on this day-by-day journey with God that we trust, a journey of faith. Abraham had to trust God. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time when he didn't quite see what was going on. And sometimes, you know, as we follow Jesus as Christians, it can be like that for us. So today we're going to be thinking about Abraham at a particular point of his journey. And we're going to be thinking about two other people who were caught up with him in this part of the journey. We're going to see what it tells us about God. What it tells us about how this God can be part, not just of the life of a man like Abraham, but of men and women uh, like us today. So we're going to start off in Genesis 20, and it's on page 20 if you want to follow it in in the Bible nearby to you. Um, And we're going to read uh, the story of Abraham and a man called Abimelech. Genesis 20, uh, 1 to 18. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. I should think that's an understatement. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. It's a strange way of expressing love, but anyway, that's what he asked him. 
In verse 14, Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle, male and female slaves, and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all you who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Well, that's an interesting account, isn't it? Do you remember what happened last time in chapter 18? We saw Abraham on a great spiritual high. He met with God. Paul reminded us of this meeting with the living God. He'd been drawn into God's uh, purposes. Uh, He'd got the promise that his wife, Sarah, that she would have a son within the year. He, he went on to have this prayer time when he's able to, to, to intercede, to, to ask God to preserve, uh, not to destroy the whole cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, if there were so many people, righteous people there. Because Abraham's thinking of the righteous people he knew and loved there, Lot and his family. Uh, and yeah, this is a tremendous high, high point. And we read in chapter 19 how actually Lot and his family were rescued. The righteous people were kind of got out of Lot before the judgment came, though the city was in fact destroyed. So what's happened now? Well, he's moved south again towards the borders of Egypt to this place called Gerar. The local tribal leader is a man called Abimelech, or Abimelech may have been a kind of title like Pharaoh and Caesar, you know, a kind of generic title for the local tribal lord. And, and this tribal lord takes uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, into his harem. Uh, why he did that, we don't know. I, one person I read, I don't know if this is right or not, I think it's a bit fanciful. You know, uh, Abraham promise, is promised that Sarah will bear a child within a year. This writer kind of speculated that maybe Abraham and Sarah kind of got younger during that year. You know, that they, something happened without cosmetic surgery, but every day they got up and, you know, they were a bit, you know, less saggy and whatever, and everything was kind of getting better. And so possibly by the time, you know, at this point, you know, uh, Abimelech saw Sarah and thought she might be good to have in the harem, but maybe she'd become uh, a young-looking, beautiful woman uh, again, rather than an old and beautiful woman. I must be careful what I say here. <laughs> That's a bit of an digression. But the point is, he does that because Abraham and Sarah have told him that she's his sister. Now, do you remember that? Does that ring any bells with you, those who've been here? This has happened before, isn't it? This is exactly what happened in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. Right at the beginning, Abraham did the same thing. Went down to Egypt and and, and told a half-truth about Sarah, and it led to all kinds of problems. What's happened? Has Abraham learned nothing after all these years? And it could have been so disastrous, couldn't it? Now, Sarah's been promised that she's going to have a child within the year from God. Previously, it was... Uh, <laughs> um, I've got to get this right. Ishmael is born when Abraham is his father and Sarah's not his mother. Surely we're not going to have a situation now where Sarah's going to have a child and Abraham isn't his father. What, what, what could be going on? It's potentially utterly disastrous. But we read that God intervenes, doesn't he? He speaks to Abimelech in a dream. 
and disaster is in, uh, averted. And in, in the morning when Abimelech wakes up, as we read, tells all his, his officials, who understandably are more than a little concerned about what's been going on. Abimelech, the pagan, who knows nothing of God except of what he saw in a dream, challenges Abraham, you've done me harm. It's almost like, and when you read it, you know, um, it's almost as if Abimelech, he doesn't, it's almost as if Abimelech has read Genesis 12. Remember Genesis 12? Those who bless you, I will bless. You're supposed to be a blessing to other people, God says to Abraham. That's my purposes for you. Ultimately, Jesus is going to come out of your, your descendants. And the whole point is you're to be a blessing to others. And Abimelech is saying, you've hurt me, you've done me harm. You've done the exact opposite that God purposed for you. Boy. That can happen, isn't it? We can be judged by unbelievers. Things can go that wrong, I'm afraid to say, when the believing community are kind of challenged by unbelievers and our behaviour is worse than the people around us. That's the point that Abraham got to in his life. Now, what can we learn? What's gone wrong? How did it happen? What can we learn? Well, look at the kind of dialogue. I said before, in Old Testament narrative passages, Old Testament account stories, the dialogue that's recorded is terrifically important. It gives you a real insight into what's happening. So look at what Abraham says when he rather kind of sheepishly, you know, stands before Abimelech and says, well, this is, this is what, why is it? First of all, look at verse 11. Abraham, I said to myself, says Abraham, and he goes, Abraham has lost sight of God's promises at that point. He'd lost sight of all that God had said, all that God is, all that God had, uh, he, he'd known about God. And he, who was he listening to? Himself. His own kind of view of stuff. And he's thinking that he's in some kind of spiritual exclusion zone. You know, he's thinking that this is a place, you know, Abimelech's tribe, well, God isn't there. You know, how could Abraham have thought that? All he knew about God, but hey, you know, we can do like that, can't we? We can forget, we can miss, we can start listening to ourselves and other people rather than the God and his word. And actually, he said, oh, there's God's not here anywhere. Well, that wasn't true, was it? Because Abimelech shows that while Abraham's thinking there's no fear of God in this place, the living God is waking up Abimelech in his dreams and actually having a conversation with him about how this man, Abimelech, is accountable to God for his behaviour. God is there. God is around. God, as the New Testament says us, is much closer to us than we might imagine. He's not far from any one of us, the New Testament says. So Abraham's, first of all, missing the point. He's lost sight of God's truth. He's listening to himself. Secondly, he's dominated by fear. Fear becomes the main thing. He says it, doesn't he? He says, I, you know, they're going to kill me because of my wife. He's forgotten everything. Fear is that kind of ability to swamp us and just to take over everything. And it's fear of what might happen, isn't it? There's no evidence for it. Everything he knows of God is the opposite. But how easy is not it to say, well, what if? Have <laughs> you had nights like that when you've been awake thinking, what if? What if? And actually you could, you could fill pages and pages and pages with what ifs, couldn't you? Abraham's in that situation. And then I think it's true to say 
that there's something very deep-rooted here. Abraham says, look, right at the beginning, Sarah and I made this pact with each other that wherever we went, we could tell a half-truth. I'd say she's my sister, and she'd say he's my brother. And that we'd use that as a strategy to survive. There's some kind of insecurity. At the very moment uh, Abraham and Sarah set out, there was something there that just made it hard for them to, to trust God completely and to have this kind of backup plan B. And that has been there for years, 20 years or more, and now it's kind of surfacing again, and it's bit Abraham back big time. Can we lose our way, even after a great spiritual high? Even when, you know, you, you, sometimes why we pray for people immediately after baptism, because sometimes after you get baptized, you, you're on a great spiritual high, and it's easy, the enemy attacks us at those times. Or, you know, you come back from camp, and it's been marvellous, and You'd be living on cloud nine, or it's like me, actually. When I came out of hospital, I'd been on an amazing high with the Lord, and I'd been high on adrenaline and high on drugs, possibly, you know, proper drugs. <laughs> actually, no, paracetamol was all they gave me in hospital. But, but you know, and it's possible to, to, to crash down afterwards because of our vulnerabilities, because fear, we lose sight of God's truth, or for a moment, fear seems to become the main thing. We talk to ourselves, we listen to ourselves, we lose sight of God's promises. We don't hear what he has to say in his word through other people as the Spirit prompts us. No, we're just dominated entirely by us and our stuff. Our, uh, and our fears take over and, and sometimes we can have <coughs> these pardon me, deep-rooted insecurities that can kind of be kind of murmured away, you know, right there in the background, which can just pop up and suddenly, at this critical point, it's almost like, you know, you think of it from a spiritual warfare point of view. This is the point at which God's great plan to rescue the world. You know what God says in Genesis? I'm going to go, I mustn't go off piece too much because time's going to go. Remember in Genesis, God promises the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. God made that promise that this seed, this descendant, this, this one would come and break the power of the enemy. And Abraham's been promised, this seed is going to come through Isaac. But it's not surprising that the enemy, who doesn't want his head crushed much, attacks at that very critical point. So we can be in that way. We may not, the stakes will never be as high for us as they were for Abraham. We're not going to bring the Messiah into the world through our descendants. But the stakes are still high. We can still be vulnerable to attack. But God is at work. He's not going to be thwarted by our failures. He blesses, God blesses Abimelech. God tells Abimelech that Abraham is a prophet and Abraham's going to pray for him. It's amazing. Abraham's right out of it and God's saying, look, I'm Abraham, he's still a prophet. You know, he's having a wobbly time and he will pray for you. Just like he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah two chapters before, God says, Abraham's going to do that for you, Abimelech. And he does. He gets back on track with God's truth, even though it has to come through pagan Abimelech. Abraham doesn't hide his failure. He comes clean. He basically comes back to God, and he gets back to God's purposes for him, which is to be the prophet who will bless other people. And the first thing he does is pray for Abimelech and Abimelech's uh, household. It's probably gone on for quite a while, this issue. Uh, all his household is healed and so on and so forth. You read it in the text. Abraham gets back 
to where God wants him. One year later, Abraham is at a place where lots more have happened and he can look back and he sees how the eternal, everlasting God has been with him. He now sees that this God can be trusted and put these earlier fears to rest. And he never goes back to these earlier fears again. Abraham from now on is, is, is told up for the greatest test of faith in anybody's life. It's coming up in the next chapter. Look at chapter 21, verse 33. This is this point where Abraham kind of uh, a year later looks back. Verse 33. Uh, we'll read the rest later. But Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abraham kind of looks back and says, yeah, I can trust in the eternal God, the everlasting God. I can do that. And he does. And what was the place where he did that? It was a place called Beersheba. Beersheba. And at that place called Beersheba, Abraham kind of knew... God's restoring grace. God's grace in bringing him back to the right place with God again. How was he so sure that he could now trust God? Well, we read about that in chapter 21 as we read the story. Let's just read verses 21, 1 to 6. So before Abraham goes to Beersheba, before he calls on the eternal God, before you know he gets to that point, something's happened and this is what's happened Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham, to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Just a comment. Look at some of the phrases there. Again, look, it's, it's uh, very clear, isn't it? The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. He did for Sarah what he had promised. At the very time God had promised him. God has brought me laughter. God has kept his promise. At the right time, there was joy. And you know, Abraham, a year after him coming, his coming back, as it were, on, into line with God, is able to look back and see, yes, God keeps his promises. And we can come back and we can know God's restoring grace Because we can trust him. He has kept his promises. And there's a great verse in Galatians that says, at the right time, just at the right time, it says, Christ came. We know God has kept his promises. We don't look back to the birth of Isaac and so we can call on the eternal Lord God. We look back at the birth of Jesus and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we know that God restores us with his grace. We can come back to him. Now, more briefly, let's look at some other people. We know that God has intervened in Christ at the right time. God will fulfill his purposes for us. He is at work for good in all things. We can trust him 
for that. Let's have a look at some other people, another couple. More briefly, we've already read about Abimelech. Uh, let's read a little bit more about Abimelech and about something else about him. That's in chapter 21, verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard only about it today. So Abraham bought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you've set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand, as I witness that I dug this well. So that place, uh, that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. And the next verse we read. I just want to, for a few moments, think about Abimelech and his story, because uh, these verses give us a little bit more about what's happening with him. Abimelech and Abraham enter into an alliance They've had this argument over this well at this place called Beersheba, same place again. And then the matter is settled as they enter a covenant. They become closer. Now, if you were to ask Abimelech, what does Beersheba mean to you? Abimelech would have been reminded of his dealings with Abraham and his dealings with Abraham's God. Abimelech became aware of God. Uh, and of Beersheba, as they make the covenant, there's that kind of continuing sense of God. If we ask Abimelech uh, about Beersheba, what do you think about what's happened to you? He'd probably tell us about how God spoke to him in a dream, how God revealed himself to be holy but gracious, how he revealed himself as someone who uh, wants to bless him, how Abraham would pray for him. But Beersheba, Abimelech, wants more than that. He wants to be closer to Abraham. He wants to be in covenant with Abraham. Actually to receive something from Abraham, to be, to be kind of part of Abraham's story. Needing to know more. This man who sees God on the edges of his life, in dreams, in answered prayers, in... Uh, kind of helping him get stuff in some way, is beginning to see that there can be more to knowing God than just having him in the background, you know, answering your prayers in an emergency, keeping you from this, that or the other. God wants to be so much more to Abimelech than that. So Beersheba, I suppose, if you were going to ask Abimelech, can speak to us of God's inviting grace. God's saying to us, I don't want it just to be in the edge of your lives. I want to be in the middle of them. I don't want to just be someone who blesses you when you need me. I want to be part of everything you do. Not just a convenience, not just a belief, not just some kind of vague life force, but more into the language of relationship and covenant. That's what Beersheba kind of points us to for Abimelech. Now, is that where you are today? 
God's kind of around in your life. He's been good to you. But you've never really kind of got to know him. He's kind of at the edge. Well, respond to God's inviting grace. Beersheba speaks of that. God's inviting grace. Then finally, there's another family whose story orbits around this place, Beersheba. We're going to read it in verses 8 to 20 of chapter 21. And this is the story, the account of Hagar and Ishmael and their future. The child grew and weaned, verse 8, and and was weaned rather. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes and she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So Isaac is born as promised. We read that earlier. Three years or so go and he's weaned. In that culture, they weaned them totally between ages three and five. So he's at least three years old. And again, in the culture, it was a big deal when the child was weaned. It was a big milestone and you had a great banquet and a festival. And that's what happens here. Now, Hagar, you remember she was the slave woman who uh, Sarah encouraged Abraham to sleep with so that he could have a kind of surrogate promised child with her. And uh, that child was Ishmael, and he's now about 12, 13 years old, or more, actually. And, you know, there's a bit of, you know, abuse going on, I guess. Her son is mocking Isaac, and Sarah explodes, and her hostility is real, (laughs) She says, that, that woman and her son's got to go. She's not staying here. Now, Abraham is de- distressed about this, and as we read, God reassures Abraham. Sarah's reasons are completely wrong. You know, she's bitter and hostile and angry. But God actually says to Abraham, her reasons are wrong, but actually, unknowingly, she's right in saying that these two boys cannot stay together. Isaac is going to be the one who will carry the mainstream of God's purposes forward. And so reluctantly, Abraham, hearing from God, uh, gives uh, Hagar that skin of water. 
is, uh, is not, you know, it's not a water bottle. It's the biggest kind of animal skin you could have. It's as much water as he could give them to take. You know, it's the kind of thing that went over your shoulder. It was a, a lot of water. So off they go into the desert with the water, and it runs out. And in despair, she leaves her teenager, as he probably is now. He's practically given up. He may have been a bit weaker than she was, or whatever, more dehydrated, more quickly, whatever. They're both crying, and God hears and intervenes. And God shows her that she's loved, that he cares for her, that he meets her need. He provides her with water. She opens her eyes, and there's this well at Beersheba, this source of water which God provides for her, or enables her to see what's already there. doesn't matter, the miracle is just, I think, is good. And she's promised a future with this boy. She said that God has not abandoned them. She's actually promised as well that she is not going to be a victim anymore. She's going to not just be at the mercy of all these other people. She's not going to be at the mercy of the horrendous stuff that she was caught up with. But God is going to give her son his blessing into the future. She's no longer going to be a victim. Where did that happen? At Beersheba. So what does Beersheba mean to Hagar and Ishmael? Well, it's the place where God provided. God's providing grace. Hagar's been caught in the middle. I've got great sympathy for Hagar. It wasn't her fault, was it? It wasn't her idea that she slept with Abraham. She didn't go trying to seduce her master. Her mistress, Sarah, said, take my my slave girl. She was probably a young girl anyway. She probably wouldn't want to sleep with an old bloke of a hundred or eighty or whatever he was, I forget, at the time. No, she's caught up. She's a complete victim in the middle of it. Yet, you know, there's no collateral damage with God. You know, we watch 20, do you watch 24, these kind of stuff, these actions? There's always people get blown up left, right and centre. There's collateral damage. But, but Hagar, you know, she, actually what there is with her is collateral blessing. She's involved in it. It's not her fault. But God hears her cry and comes and meets with her and touches her. And blesses her. God touched their lives in different ways. Let's put it together. Let's bring these three people back to Beersheba and say to them, What does Beersheba mean to you? Abraham. Beersheba is about being in the place where I should be with God. Trusting God, not listening to myself, walking by faith. Seeing these deep-seated issues of fear dealt with. And, you know, I just wondered whether... Do you need a bucket full of grace for God's restoration from the well of Beersheba? Trust him. Get back to him, to where you should be with him. Remember his promises. Move forward. If we asked Abimelech, what does Beersheba mean to you? Well, he'd talk about the fact that God invited him to get to know him better. And are you going to realize, like um, Abimelech did, that God wants more of you than just being on the edge of your life, helping you out occasionally. He wants you to know him. 
not just about him. He invites us onto this journey with him. He doesn't want you to be a second-hand Christian, you know, for God's grace to come kind of indirectly through your partner or your friends or your kids or your parents. He wants us to know him himself. His inviting grace is for us to respond to him. Start properly with God. Respond to, do you want a bucket load of God's inviting grace from the well of Beersheba? And finally, let's think about Hagar. What would she say? What did Beersheba mean to her? The place that she learns that even though she is a victim, so God meets with her. And he will meet with you too. As a victim, God will meet with you and provide his grace for you. He will bless, he will provide. He's not forgotten you. He's at work in your situation. And he can take you into a future in his purposes where you're beyond being a victim. Do you need a bucket full of grace? Providing grace for the future. Trust yourself to God as Hagar did. These events map out something of what God is like in his dealings with people. He invites us to come closer to him In Jesus, God meets us and brings us into friendship with God. He invites us to walk with him, to be obedient, trusting him, responding to his truth, not just going our own way, but day by day, intentionally walking with Jesus. And it shows us that there is a massive place in God's heart for victims. And he promises something different as we walk with him into his loving purposes for us. I'm going to leave us just with the words of Jesus. Maybe you need to meet with him today. Come to me, he says, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do we respond to God's grace as he invites us just to welcome him into our lives wherever we're at?